like movies about gladiators. Those men wanted to have sex with me. Great Scott. Nice Bieber. Cinderella boy. Rambo is a pussy. Come with me if you want to live. Hello, and welcome to Retro Ramble. I'm Charlie McGee. I'm Batman. Sorry? <laughs> Who are you? I'm George McGee. Uh, as you may have guessed, this month we are going to be covering the 1989 Tim Burton film Batman. On last month's episode, we covered The Goonies, a family classic, Richard Donner, Steven Spielberg. So we're going to a very different place now. It's the summer, there's comic book films everywhere, whether it's Wonder Woman, Spider-Man, or anything else that's being thrown at you. There's never been a better time for us to cover a comic book film. And that's why we've gone back to Batman because at the time I was 10 years old, George, you would have been- Six. Yes. So more impressionable than you can ever imagine. So it's no surprise that Batman is not only one of the most bankable franchises or assets that uh, studios keep returning to, it's been a very big part of our lives. This may be a long episode. I would think so. I've, I've got a lot to say about it. I say I'm a big fan. It's one of the sort of first films that I watched repeatedly as a child. Um, so I've got a lot to say about it. So as per usual, we're going to talk about, um, you know, the production team that brought us this, uh, what was required to make this a green light, to make this film actually happen, because there is a bit of backstory, which George is going to go into some detail. We're going to look at, we're going to talk briefly about our first memories of the film, what worked, uh, what doesn't work, how it still holds up today, and obviously our usual feature of coulda, woulda, shoulda. But with it being Batman and with there being so much connected to this, whether it be the comics and the computer games that it spawned, the more recent films from, uh, from Nolan and the fact that they are still making films that he is still a go-to, we're going to try and cover that towards the end. But I think without further ado, shall we, we're going to take a jump into the film, George. Let's so get into it. What are we recording on uh, this week, George? Have you still, how did the, well, seat, how did the, was it the Philips? Uh, Laserdisc. Laserdisc, how well, did that sound in the Well, end? very much like Batman, I'm currently surrounded by a bank of 80s TV screens. There's lots of knobs and dials, and one of them's going to be recording something, I hope. Excellent. Okay, well, let's kick off the show. So George, I know that this film was directed by Tim Burton, but how was Batman 1989 made possible? This film has quite an extensive pre-production. So you would think uh, for Batman, it was quite a, a sure thing. You know, looking at the how long the character's been around since 1939. He's one of the most popular comic book characters. Obviously, we had a, a Batman film uh, off the back of the 1966 series with Adam West. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. Which is uh, a very much, I wouldn't even say it's a guilty pleasure, it's just a pleasure to watch. But yeah, they, the actual idea of getting a live action uh, proper film of Batman took a long time coming. So there used to be movie serials back in the 1940s, so like 15 minute serials. There was, yeah, the 1960s show. 
And it wasn't until 1979, there was a guy called Michael Uslan, and he was working at DC Comics, who owned Batman, the comic book house that that Batman sits under, and that also uh, DC Comics have Wonder Woman and Superman as well. And his dream was to make a dark, authentic version of, a film version of Batman, much like how he was originally uh, created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger in the late 30s, early 40s. Uh, So he bought the film rights because nobody wanted them. The the guys at DC said he was a fool for doing it. It's never going to work. Never going to work. And he teamed up with an old film producer because he um, himself didn't have any background in film. And they went around all the various different studios trying to shop it and nobody wanted to touch it, which is quite surprising considering this is a year after Donna's Superman. I was going to ask you, I was going to try and throw uh, off the hip question. So where are we in the Superman franchise? Have so, we thrown nuclear weapons into the sun yet? No, that, well, that wasn't until the late 80s. <laughs> uh, uh, well, well, no, but I mean, we're in 89. So where were we in the Superman? Superman 4 was, I think, 87. Right, so we had done and dusted. But, but no, this is uh, at the time that um, the rights were bought. This is 1979. Right, so t- 10 years before it made it to screen, the rights were bought. Wow. So they didn't have much uh, joy, but I don't know if it was because of the stigma attached to the TV show. It, it ranged, you know, looking back because it'd been 20 odd uh, years or, or just It was iconic. Everyone assumed that it had to be camp and But I think it, 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 veered, it wasn't looked back with fond remem- memories, the Adam Not West in the show. 80s. Not in not the, the 80s. 80s People no. looked back at it a bit, a bit with disdain, like, oh, not like the Zhao Pow and that sort of thing. So they ended up teaming with, up with some more experienced movie producers, two guys called Peter Goober and John Peters. They were behind uh, films like Witches of Eastwick, Rain Man, and they were actually uh, producers on Flashdance as well, executive producers on that, which links them to uh, Simpson and Bruckheimer as well. So they were quite powerful uh, producers or quite successful producers in the 80s. It landed back with Warner Brothers, which did own and still own DC Comics. So it landed back with them and then they started uh, looking into it. Warner Brothers were obviously, now it had caught the attention of more experienced producers. They were keen to push for a more Superman-esque tone. Off the back of the success of Superman, they wanted it very family-friendly, very colourful, very by by the numbers. And I think even Richard Donner was uh, in the frame at one point. Also, um, it went through various directors throughout the 80s. So it went through Ivan Reitman, who directed Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters yeah. And what the, else did he do? Reitman's uh, done a few things. Ivan Reitman's main, but mainly comedies. Yeah. Interestingly, there's, there's, there's conflicting tales, but when he was in the frame... It's rumoured that Bill Murray was in the frame to play Batman and Eddie Murphy, Murphy was going to be Robin. Yeah, I, I read that as well. Which sounds too silly to, to be true. Uh, Joe Dante was also attached for a year. Joe Dante is the guy behind Gremlins, mm-hmm. which was a Warner Brothers property. Finally, it was passed over to uh, an up-and-coming uh, team. So Tim Burton was, had at that stage had done Pee-wee's Big Adventure and he had, he had finished... Uh, Beetlejuice but hadn't been released yet and he was teamed up with a writer called Sam Hamm no relation to my man crush John Hamm but they were yeah both new talents at at Warner's and they started working together so is that why they brought Keaton with them well maybe why Burton brought Keaton with them because he was like I've worked with this guy he has a certain intensity so yeah exactly right Burton was the man that 
pushed for Keaton because they'd worked together. And it was all about that, that together they wanted to create this universe that was recognizable but timeless at the same time. There was no product placement. It was very noir influenced. I think that was the sort of the angle that Sam Ham was going for. And Sam Ham was always keen from the very first draft. He didn't want it to be a traditional origin story. But more interestingly, it could be an origin about the villain. Terrorizes. Wait till they get a load of me. However, this was all hinging. They were doing all this pre-production work in, I think, 1988-1987, but they didn't get the green light until Beetlejuice was a success, because then that's when Tim Burton was, okay, he's a bankable star. But it's interesting to think that Tim Burton was 29 when he was doing this. What a young director that must have been. Very young director. But but Spielberg was young as well when he first got going. That's true, that's true. So yeah, we can't talk about this film without the, the casting controversy about Michael Keaton, which is quite amusing in this day and age when, you know, everyone's got an opinion about something. The internet is full of of hateful people ranting about casting decisions every day. The trolls. The trolls. <laughs> uh, the little trolls with the keyboards. But this was in pre-internet days, but still thousands of people wrote into Warner Brothers and said, you've got to be joking, you cannot cast, you know. Well, there were still rumour mills. There was still, you were reading Empire, there were magazines, there was newspapers, there was... Yeah, uh, there was... There was, there was, there was casting parties, there was, there was but, production but, times. But, but even a lot of the production team were, were against the, the casting of Keaton because he didn't, you know... He was, you know, five foot ten, didn't have a square jaw, didn't look like an action hero. But Burton's made a very good point. He said it was more about the Bruce Wayne character. He had to be convincing that you had to believe a guy was driven enough, nuts enough to dress up as a bat. And if you pick some leading Hollywood actor like Alec Baldwin, um, I think he was in the frame as well. Uh, there was, a, you know, a few, a lot of Hollywood's leading men were, were in the in the frame. But Burton felt if you took a series like a, a leading man and tried to dress him up as Batman, people wouldn't take it seriously. But if you took someone that looked a little bit unhinged and a little bit weird, and, you know, to be fair to him, you know, I think it, it, it pays off quite well. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's something that's obviously glossed over because we and everybody else remember this film we're going to talk about in a moment for the villain. And... What struck me this time is that this, the most recent viewing of this film, I couldn't get over how, um, obviously he's had a bit of a, a reconnaissance of his own, uh, the Michael Keatonissance, and whatever. But anyway, he is, he's, did he get, he got an Oscar for Birdman, didn't he? No, or, he lost out to Eddie Redmayne, I think. Um, but no, he's back on the scene, you know, he's mm. done that, he's, he's obviously in both Birdman and in um, the recent Spider-Man film showing that he's got the chops and he's done the uh, the founder so he's shown he's got uh, Spotlight he's, yeah. he's, he's mixing it up in terms of he's Oscar yeah. you know serious weighty stuff with yeah he's, he's got his pick of uh, stuff and he's also very good in um, the other guys with Will Ferrell yeah, as, as the, the police chief as the police chief but the point I just wanted to make is just that he had it back then and yeah. we probably glossed over it and maybe we didn't see um what Tim Burton saw because one we take it for granted because there was a certain overshadowing 
by another actor. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, the other thing was that one of the reasons why he was picked is apparently for his expressive eyes. Apparently, Michael Keaton's, um, and it makes sense if you think when you're in the Batman cowl. Yeah, you can't and, see anything but and, the eyes. And, and I think uh, Chris Evans has said the same thing recently about playing Captain America. It's very hard to emote with your face when you're hidden behind a mask and a helmet. You know, your yeah. face is covered. And, and people are staring at your amazing pecs. <laughs> that, that, that's true, but Michael Keaton didn't have that problem. And very much like uh, Donna's Superman, uh, the when you haven't got when you've got an unknown. Well, Michael Keaton wasn't as unknown as Christopher Reeve was, but when you have a fairly lesser known character as your lead, you have to bolster your your cast up with you know some better known talent. And so Jack Nicholson was always at the top of the. The list for playing the Joker, what? But there was some some other very. Didn't they try and push Robin Williams into it just to try and tip Jack over the edge? Yeah, I, yeah. I, so, I the, so there was the the top list for the Joker was all you know Hollywood's leading comedians uh, of the time. Yeah, comedians of the time. So well, but even just uh, villainous actors as well. So you had Robin Williams was apparently approached and was 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 ready to do it, and then they basically went to Jack Nicholson and said. Well, Robin Williams is keen to do it. If you're not going to do it, which pushed Jack into the role. Um, but John Lithgow was very, uh, talked himself out of it. Recently, he came out and said, yeah, he met with Tim, Tim Burton and he'd just come out of a long theatre production and needed some time off. Uh, Tim Curry was up for it. Oh, wow. And Willem Dafoe, because obviously he, he just looks plain evil. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Nicholson's casting brought that respectability uh, and also reassured the studio that had fears about, well, this Who's going to go and see this? Yeah, you know, it, it was the name. It brought, yeah, it brought that film because Jack is, you know, Hollywood royalty. He's a credible actor. He's very, you know, versatile, whether it's, you know, gritty drama or comedy. You know, Nicholson is very good at what he does, and he was a big name. You know, at the height of his powers in in the sort of the eighties. And we get all of Nicholson in this. We see everything. We see cool Nicholson. We see the jokes. We see the dryness. We see. Apparently, he, it's it's one of his favorite films. It's one of my favorite films. I mean, obviously, I've watched his Oscar-worthy performance, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, and we more recently we've had The Departed. But there's a scene in The Departed. You know, when he's Sorry to go off tangent here, but when he's trying to spook uh, and he's got the hand with the ring on and he's... I haven't uh, seen The Departed in a while. Well, it's what he's, he pulls a, a, a cut off hand out of a freezer oh, yeah. and he takes the ring off because he wants to... And he's telling someone a story oh, when right. he's doing it and he's like, his hands and the way he's just gesticulating, it's just so much Jack Napier. And that's mm. why I would argue that in all of his work, you you know, in terms of it, we talk mm. about range sometimes because we try to sound like intelligent people, but the range of uh, Jack Nicholson that you see in this film I don't think there's anything, there's, there's nothing that he does in any other film that you don't see in this. You, everything's on show. He puts so much into it mm. and he's such a professional. And well, cause yeah, he's quite brooding when he's, when he's Jack Napier. Such a journey. Um, oh, sorry, an arc. An arc, character arc. But Jack Nicholson isn't a dumb cluck. He's a very smart man and he approached the role in terms of, he knew he was uh, in demand, that he was top of the list. So he cut himself quite a deal in terms of his pay packet. And I can't remember the exact figure, but he took a percentage of the merch uh, of, of the, yeah, of the uh, proceeds. So he knew that he says in this, 
there's a great um, sort of respective on the, the special edition DVD and Jack has some great anecdotes. He clearly loves talking about it, but he says he knew how big it was going to become. He knew it was going to be something and that's why he asked for a percentage of the profits. And the, the number seems to, to vary, but I think as it was even back in the early noughties, he was still the highest paid actor for one film. I know Robert Downey Jr. is making silly amounts as you call it David Schwimmer money um, on Iron Man but Jack was the first and one of the first people I know Alec Guinness did it I think on Star Wars as well but to single out to have to have like so much confidence in yeah. the role yeah and and to uh, get it in the contract before pre, so yeah, pre-production I think he was about he made about 50 or 60 million he may still be getting profits from it now it's 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 scary to think and it's it's hilarious because in this documentary Peter Goober one of the producers goes Jack made a lot of money <laughs> a lot <laughs> and then there's a bit of a pause he goes but deservedly so <laughs> he's, he's obviously sort of you know crying that the amount of money that he lost to Nicholson um, <laughs> love that joker but Nicholson goes on to saying he, when he met with Tim Burton how much faith he had in him he said he goes I knew even though he was such a young guy he was so assured and he was so particular about what he wanted I knew I knew he was going to do well. I knew it was going to be something good. Well, for me, that is the real the real test of someone's metal. Into is when they're really successful. Is what do they do with that power? Like to to um, you know to give you to put this in perspective. You know, Jack was at his height. He had power to throw around. And you know what he did? He got totally behind this film. And he says, mm-hmm. "I'm going to make this film. I'm going to make you a star. I'm going to make this a success well, uh, because I am the number one." <laughs> Well, but he's, he's going to do that. But he was mature enough to say, I'm going to help you make this a success. Yeah. And he was fully invested. And like someone like, say, Natalie Portman, who uses her power and she has someone who puts her shoes on. <laughs> so, you know, when you're really big, that's mm. when you really, that's when you tro- show your true self. And the way that Jack's yeah. showed himself is like, I'm going to make this film a classic. And I'm going to put myself in the center of it. Fair play. Well, apparently they had to uh, win him over. So he, uh, Jack in, uh, invited them over to his ranch. And he was like, let's let's go and ride some horses. <laughs> and uh, Tim Burton being, you know, the sort of goth recluse, like, I don't do horses that don't ride. And <laughs> the producers are like, today, you fucking do, Tim. <laughs> and so he apparently, yeah, he got on the horse and yeah, he uh, won Jack over. We're probably focusing more on production than we normally do, but as George, as when you start talking about this, we're talking about 10 years mm. to make this film a reality. And they finally decided, I'm, I don't know if it was a budget thing, to make the whole film in London, so at Pinewood Studios. So all of Gotham City is a built set. And it, at the time, it was uh, the most expensive uh, production in the UK, and it came in at what amount? What is it, Charlie? Uh, about $35 million. $35 million. Burton says that being away, being in London and being so physically far away from Hollywood and studio was a benefit for the production team because... Being in such a dark, damp city. Dark, damp city. (laughs) Um, Because there was so much negativity about it that people were convinced it was going to be, because of Burton's back catalogue of Pee Wee and Beetlejuice and the casting of Michael King. It was going to be a camp comedy like the Adam West that nobody wanted. So there does was... that bring us neatly to the teaser? Yes, it does. It does. So because um... I watched this the other day, and I and it shocked me watching a teaser without a soundtrack. 
So yeah, the, uh, sorry, music. I the, so say. the teaser trailer was was cut together and to try and quell this negativity. One of the first examples of a teaser trailer, and people Which is saying a lot because they are now a massive part of the business. It's it was it's part and parcel. Now we have teasers for teaser trailers. It's ninety seconds of cut footage. There's no voiceover. There's Dodgy camera angles. There's dodgy <laughs> camera angles. There's, there might be some minimal music, but people went nuts for it. They were curious. This is the first example. I mean, people did this when Star Wars was released and The Phantom Menace was released, but people were paying money to go and see a film just to go and watch the Batman trailer. People were selling, apparently, according to one of the producers, people were selling copies of the trailer on VHS, a 90-second trailer on VHS for $25 at comic book conventions. So oh. people were going nuts for it. So it's a, yeah, it, it, I remember seeing it. It was played in front of uh, one, of my, probably one of my first cinema outings to see Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And I didn't know what was going on. Like, it looked so dark. There was, like... Batman that was joking. I was like, who's this other evil guy with the weird eyebrows? Oh no, that's Michael Keaton. <laughs> um, but I thought he was another character. I didn't really get that he was the hero because yeah, he doesn't look like your typically heroic person. So you're telling me that people would pay good money to go and see a film of the time just to see the trailer and not stay and watch that film. Now, is that just because the Batman trailer was great or because the film at the time was Police Academy 6, <laughs> City Under Siege. Well... No, I just, I checked the films that this happened with. How do you know? How do you know that they left just because they wanted to watch the trailer? Because, oh, or okay. just because Police Academy was that, so they, bad? They, yeah, that, that makes sense. In terms of the hype machine, as it got closer and closer to release, I think it became a phenomenon, a cultural phenomenon. Well, there was the music, there was the... Merchandise. They, there was the merchandise, but also I knew before going to see it, for example, well, Dad told me about the car he yeah. said that they've modeled this that they've taken lights from a honda that they've put a jet engine yeah. in the back and i was like what yeah and then when you watch it and still now to this day still that scene you know looks it does mm. and if you look at it now with keen eye it does perform and look like say the thing i compare it to is like a formula one car well the uh that actually is a nice sort of segue because I, uh, I can't uh, talk about this film i need to give a sort of an honorable mention to the production team the uh, production designer to so the guy that created the Gotham cityscape with you all know that all, brilliant artwork all the architecture he designed the Batmobile um, was a guy called Anton first and he was also the guy that he did the set design for Full Metal Jacket which was also filmed in London so he managed to turn London, London into London Docklands into Vietnam that is some achievement he's uh, very much responsible for the look and feel of those early Batman films and in an extent the animated series tragically he he killed himself just two years after batman so yeah he was so influential on on the film but anyway should we jump into first memories yeah i mean i mean i've talked about it a lot yeah it's i have to say because uh you know george and i are keen followers of the empire group on facebook and a lot of the question that comes up is about your first cinematic experience. And yeah, the 12A certification... 12? Was, there was no way. Sorry, sorry, there was no way. The 12 certification was a big deal because it came out when I was like 11. So it was a big deal because we got, we were used to watching 15s and 18s on film, or uh, sorry, on, on VHS uh, without our parents' no knowledge or with, with their knowledge. But this was a big deal. This... And this was the first, one of the first 12s that I went, but it's one of those experiences 
I'll never forget that. It was it was the Metro Centre in Gateshead. The uh, UCI. The UCI, as it was back then. You know, I remember mm. everything about that night. And it's funny because there's so much of that in the in the Batman story itself, of him going to the theatre with his parents. Mm. It was, it's like a fourth wall thing. It's like, I'll never forget going to the cinema with my dad to see Batman. You know, yeah. it's like that and, Danny Elfman music. And I will never forget how envious I was. And how I can, much I hated you as a child. <laughs> I can imagine. But it was, that, that you talk about first memories, but the the VHS was is what we watched again and again. Again and again, and we we should talk briefly about the trailers. I mean, well, yeah. So, so my your your first memories. So my first memory, obviously, as I was young, I was six. I mentioned in our our first uh, podcast that Dad had actually bought a VHS copy uh, in on a business trip in America. We were so excited. He told us about it. Yeah, and it didn't work. This Uh, was back in the day. We should explain that uh, Batman had been out for six months. Uh, for months, shall we say? Yeah, it, it, I think this would, would have been probably sort of around Christmas times. So it came out in the summer, and Dad came back with a, a an American VHS copy, and he knew how much of a diehard Batman fan I was. Sadly, it didn't work, so I had to wait till pretty sure it was it was summer May the following year. Yeah, yeah. So May nineteen ninety at a birthday party at our, our good friends uh, from last month's episode, the Glendinnings. They're uh, going to get their own feature, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> They're going to start their own rival film podcast. And you know what's going to be better because they had a better collection. <laughs> I remember watching it at a birthday party, probably James's birthday party, and I even remember the trailers. Well, we both remember the trailers, one of them being the amazingly titled, I'm going to get you, sucker. Even if you can't say it, you've got to see it. Which was uh, <laughs> one of the first Wayne's uh, spoof uh, parody films. So, Have you ever seen it? Yeah, I, I've, I thought we watched it together. We probably have, but I have a feeling uh, that we were in a state that I can't actually remember the, uh, the main uh, but parts it's, of yeah, it. I'm going to get you, sucker, is a black exploitation spoof uh, released, obviously, at the end of the 80s. Um, but that was, that was one. I think the other one was uh, a sort of cockney gangster, Let Em Have It. Yeah, it was. It was Let Him Have It. And then there was, wasn't the January Man with Kevin Klein. But the I, fact that George and I can remember verbatim the trailers that were in... The, even because, the slogans even, to the trailers. Even the slogans to the trailers that came with the Batman VHS gives you some idea as to how many times we've watched this film. Connected to that as well, I got given a making of book. So those really glossy books where you get all this concept art, the behind the scenes photos... And that was my first exposure to to filmmaking, what goes on to making a film, which was eye-opening for me, because I was just like, so you got this picture of Batman and the Joker. Who's this weirdo in the middle? Who's the goth? Yeah, who's the goth <laughs> in the middle with long hair? And there's like, oh, he's the director. Okay. What's and a director? What's a director? And, and it's nuts, like you saying, like your, your, your memory, like certain things you remember. Like, I always remember the... The head of casting is Marion Doherty. The Bob Ringwood was the costume designer. And those those names are burned into my brain. You could argue that that book or this film is the reason why we're here today. The reason why you studied film. The reason why we're obsessed. But you got much more interested in what makes a film. What goes into making a film. And that's why I've been talking for so long. We haven't even got to talking about Should the, the film Should we start yet. talking about the film, George? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's get into it. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. 
Where does one begin? Well, you've got At great... the beginning. Yeah, but I uh, still to this day, I want to know how big is that bat sign that the camera runs around in the opening credits? I'm guessing room size. Because you'd have to have, unless it's a small camera, this was the 80s, late 80s, What do you, th what do you 90s, think, yeah, with the, the camera runs, just, so just for you who, for those of you who haven't watched it yet, again, um, the opening credits start with the, um, you're going around and it's like... It looks like dark tunnels. Yeah, dark tunnels, you're not sure what it is, and then it zooms out and you've actually, you've been on a micro camera on a little roller coaster around the bat sign. And they obviously must have constructed a pretty big bat sign mm. and then run cameras around it, so... Yeah, I mean, it, it was probably... Probably, I mean, the, in terms of like the, when model making, they probably are able to usually think like Star Wars, like the trench run, that's like six feet deep. So it would it be would, something along those lines yeah. that they've done for Star Wars that they've done. Then they did that for Superman as well with um, Superman 2. Oh, okay. were, I saw a doc on that and that they were doing similar sort of the miniature sort mm. of work. Um, the music. Well, that's it. Danny Elfman's score is so good. I mean, Danny Elfman becomes... What's he a, done for us lately? Well, that's it. Danny Elfman <laughs> has become a bit of a parody of himself, but he, I think, out of all of Tim Burton's films, he's scored every single Tim Burton film apart from three films. So. And also that that long-running animated series. Obviously, the, the man behind the Simpsons theme tune, Edward Scissorhands, lots of orchestral maneuvers. But I think he's from, like, he started off in an 18, 80s pop band. But importantly, again, Tim Burton was a risk. Michael Keaton was a risk. This was Danny Elfman's first big score. I think he had done Beetlejuice. Yeah. But again, yeah, Beetlejuice was an unknown quantity. So... He had to prove his worth. When Tim Burton was trying to sell him into the producers, he, Danny Elfman was saying, oh, I was just playing them little bits, little melodies I've been working on. I could see the producers just were not interested in the slightest. <laughs> they were just completely switched I'm off. I'm thinking of like Vince from The Mighty Boosh here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Well, uh, what about this? What about this? And Tim Burton goes, play the march. And he does the dun, 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 dun. And the producers just... Like you said, the producer literally just got up and just started dancing. I was like, yes, that's it. That's yes. it. And like, put it. down the coke. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Um, this score of this film is, is a key part of what makes it so iconic, what makes it so operatic on it's a scale. It's what stores it in our memory. We know what's coming. Well, I remember da Dad had it on tape in his car. Yeah. He's like, I've got the Batman soundtrack. Prince? No, the other one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a great bold opening. It's really dark. It's dramatic. And as Tim Burton says it completely banishes any thoughts of 60s camp within you know in the first couple of minutes should we talk briefly about Prince because you make a valid point that it kind of dates the film and there's there there is the, the terrible bat dance sort of thing but the track that I love is um is from the museum scene the party man that is a great song which but... is a good funky track but that's it I'm a big Prince fan but I and I think there's a lot of people that are Prince fans out there where you know and obviously when he passed last year were gutted but no, I don't think anyone really looks back on the Batman soundtrack as a an awesome Prince album. No, I'd say that, and the, 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 what was, I said before, it's because the bat dance was so bad. Yeah. Whereas, and then there's the one at the end when they're on the, uh, which we'll get trust. to. Yeah. yeah, the trust, which is not as good, but the Party Man track is a very good... It works very well in the film. 
But also, no, yeah. I played it recently. I was like looking because I'm going through a bit of an 80s disco funk phase mm. uh, because we're all things retro. We take things yeah, that's, very that's retro. True. That's true. Um, and it, I like that track. It's uh, obviously the only line in it is the black and white, red yeah. and green where it's linked with a Joker. Uh, but it's a good track. It's a, whereas I think it gets a bad rap because of the Bat Dance song, yeah. which I haven't even listened to for ages, but I just it's, remember it's, it's, it's a being bit like Jive Bunny sort of commercially terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, the, the film then opens after this operatic, you know, score, opens Gotham City, um, as you say, um, an impressive matte painting, shows the, the cityscape, and you have Prince playing on the radio. Lots of taxis. <laughs> Gotham looks okay to me, George. Prince is playing, taxis are everywhere. It doesn't look as run down as you might imagine. It's a great opening because you see a, a mum and dad and a small boy wandering around Gotham City, lost, going down back streets. What's going to happen? And you immediately are fooled into thinking this is the origin of, of Batman. This is how Bruce Wayne becomes an orphan. But it's, it's not. Uh, 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 it's not. It's a, a nice, a completely wrong foot to you. And it's a great introduction into Batman because you've got the two crooks on the, on the roof. Because you're left with that scene saying... But why didn't Batman save the couple? Yeah. How did those crims get away with those those lovely innocent people's purses? And yeah. then, yeah, a and great it, entrance, a it, fantastic entrance. Well, that's it. It's all about the way he sort of glides in the silhouette. You of don't the wings. see the um, you don't see that he's coming down on a call. It no. looks like he's flying it. Yeah, and it's it, it's it's brilliant. And as you say, I remember like. The, Lots of smoke. The sound <laughs> effects of like his foot crunching underneath yeah. and stuff like that. And you have the the iconic. Who, who are you? I'm Batman. I I I'm Batman. I'm Batman. But he kind of whispers it in comparison to the more recent films, where it's a, a growly, well, it, a growly, growly. Well, growly. again, it's it's worth pointing out that Michael Keaton was the first person to do Batman voice because Adam West <laughs> talked the same whether he was Bruce Wayne or Batman. Yes, Mr. Wayne. Have you heard Mr. Freeze's scurrilous demands? Just briefly. If Robin and I act as go-betweens, are you prepared to make the telecast at midnight and pay the ransom, Mr. Wayne? I have no choice, Batman. Then may I suggest you tape the broadcast from the commissioner's office an hour earlier. Hello, Batman speaking. <laughs> um, so Michael Keaton was the first person to 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 say, "Well, we've got to. There's got to be that change in identity because otherwise, people are going to go. Hang on, you sound a lot like." It is way. hilarious because nobody else sounds like Adam West apart from <laughs> Adam West. And when you meet him, you're like, "That guy's crazy." So, like, if you then meet Batman later in the day, you're like, "Wait a minute, you're that crazy billionaire freak I met earlier." I don't know who you could be talking about. Old chum. <laughs> so got that strong opening, and then very quickly sums up. It goes around. We talked all, about this. The introduction, yeah, is all, brilliant. All, all the characters you've got: Harvey Dent, played by Lando, Lando. La Billy D. Williams, <laughs> who was um, a very smart man. He knew his his Batman Batclaw, uh, Batlaw, I should say. Batlaw, let's call it. Yeah. yeah, and he or was Bat Bat Story. Bat, he, bat <laughs> Story, even better. We'll go with that. Um, and he was aware that Harvey Dent 
eventually became Two-Face. So he put a clause in his contract saying, I need to play Two-Face in a Batman sequel. Sadly, he was bought out for Batman Forever and they brought in the much more hammy Tommy Lee Jones. So <laughs> that's why Harvey Dent goes from a black guy with a mustache <laughs> to Tommy Lee Jones and Batman Forever. But don't worry about that. <laughs> you've got, yeah, Commissioner Gordon, you've got the mayor. I don't care how deeply in debt this festival is, I want a parade, I want hot dogs, balloons, the whole schmear. I want the whole schmear. The, um, you've got Jack Nicholson, Jack Palance. Can I talk briefly? I, uh, I wanted to raise No, this. I'm sorry, it can't. There I'm sorry, time. there isn't time. What I wanted to say about the introduction of Jack, even going to throw this out there, is what's your favourite thing that you've seen an actor do in a film that they've obviously had to learn for the role? The oh, card tricks. Where he's chucking it around. But the, there's, there's other stuff in films that, that you see that you can't do, mm. but you know that the actors have obviously... Maybe it's an empire well, you know, discussion. No, completely going off topic, but I'm currently reading... Arnold Schwarzenegger's autobiography at the moment. It's his birthday today, by the way. Happy uh, no, birthday, no, no. Arnold. Or, 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 or it was recently, I think, maybe yesterday. Um, George, we're recording it on his birthday. Why <laughs> you just shut the hell up? <laughs> Happy birthday, big guy. <laughs> um, but I'm, yeah, I'm reading Arnold Schwarzenegger's autobiography. Again. <laughs> okay. It's very big. Um, amazingly titled Total Recall. How does um, he come up with but it? But he, he goes into detail of how... He links everything back to like being a bodybuilder, how many reps you have to do, but how much training he has to do for flipping the um, oh, the, the, the shotgun. shotgun for yeah. Terminator 2, which I should really save this anecdote for when we do Terminator 2, but he we'll said edit the, it out. The, the amount of times he had to spin around the gun until his fingers were bleeding. So I say there's, there's that craft. I love that stuff. Yeah. I mean, that to me is actors going above and beyond because... The thing about seeing that scene is Jack's being introduced and he's playing with cards and you're like flip, flipping it over and it comes up again and he turns the card over and it's like Joker. You know yeah. what I say? Jack Palance. Jack. Who's even parodied in his own film. I know. By, by Jack Nicholson well, so well. Well, I'm wondering, did Jack, was Jack That's Palance... That's got to be improv. That's got to be ad-libbed, yeah. Yeah. And Bob. So you've got, yeah, I love, there's so many quotes there's in this There's Eckhart, film. there's Knox, or maybe this is just the way that we remember it, but I think the introduction of the supporting characters in this film is brilliant because Batman arrives and then there's Eckhart and then there's Knox mm. and then there's Napier and then there's Palance and then there's Vicky Vale. It's done so economically. I don't know if comic book films, comic book films don't seem to be made like that because the big hang-up that we have is the shared universe. These character actors that we're talking about mm. in Batman 1989 today have probably been introduced in some other film well, that's or it. some fact, other origin story. Well, the fact is that I'm pretty sure Knox isn't in any of the Batman comics. Vicky Vale is a recurring character. Well, yeah, she's uh, she's in the comics. Uh, she's in Arkham. She's in... Uh, Carl Grissom isn't. There's obviously uh, Carmine Falcone. There's, there's always been mobsters, but... There are just new characters thrown into this, but they all... Well, Jack Napier is a new character. Well, yeah, Jack, him being yeah. the origin of the Joker. Well, that's it. The Joker never has, has an alter... It doesn't have an alter ego. A definitive alter ego. It's how they all work together to provide that exposition that you need, that background of... But it's great. How many, how many sightings of the bat have, have there been? You know? What do you know about them? Is it true yeah. that the police force... Was, I mean, we know this film too well, but yeah, it's it, great. It's economic, as we say. The films you might notice that we pick, we, we like the ones that are structured well, that have economic 
Disposition. Right. Exposition. Exposition. Ex- that's exactly what I said. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's a hangover from the Goonies. Yeah, you've got um, Eckhart, um, <laughs> who's a really corrupt cop. And again, I think the if we quickly touch on, we'll probably talk about it more later, but about the difference between this and the Chris Nolan films, I think the Nolan films deal with the whole corrupt police force a lot better. I don't really feel you get that. You get the feeling that Eckhart's one bad cop. And that's it. And Commissioner Gordon's amazing. I mean, he's the type of guy that when a bell falls down a flight of stairs, he knows what to do. But more on that, (laughs) more on that later. More on that later. (laughs) So you've got, you've got some, a little bit of Gotham's politics. So you've got the, the big festival coming up. You've got the mayor and Harvey Dent. They're trying to crack down on organized crime. They've got a new DA, they've got a festival coming up, but there's sightings of the bat, there's crime. But there's internal politics with the gangsters as well, because Jack Jack Napier's sleeping with Carl Grissom's mole, Mm -hmm. the lovely Jerry Hall, who's not married to a gangster in real life, she's just married to Rupert Murdoch. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Interpret that how you will. (laughs) How you will. I suppose then we launch into the first big action scene, which is the Axis chemical scene. So... Jack Napier's set up, the police are there, Batman are there, Danny Elfman's amazing scores there. Dun 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 And remember every punch, every kick, everything about that scene. It's I really love the way that that whole scene's filmed, the way it's going around the different corridors. You've got a real sense of the vastness of the factory, of it's it's just filmed really nicely. It feels claustrophobic. It feels I don't know for a real set. So this uh, yeah, because I said to you this place looks familiar, and you said and I said fact fans, it's the same set as the uh, ending of Aliens. So the processing plant on LV four twenty six um, or whatever Ridley's calling it well, these days, whatever it's called. But when. Ripley goes in to rescue Newt from the Alien Queen and is going through all those stairwells and corridors, all those industrial corridors. It's the same place. It's a, uh, a power plant in West London, in Acton. But, but yeah. there are no aliens there at the moment and there's no Batman. It's probably been turned into some, you know, sort of penthouses or something. Uh, <laughs> um, if, if, it's, if it is still there. It's a gourmet burger Oh, bar. actually, no. Actually, no. <laughs> what, what, what am I talking about? Batman blew it up. Of course, it's going to be turned into, a, you know, some apartments. It's a great scene. It's great seeing Batman taking out all the criminals one by one through, like, different methods. The physical effects still look great to this day. Yeah. And they're not sped up. I mean, just to quickly jump or back. Or quickly edited. Yeah, just to jump back to that first scene with the first crim that he takes down. The criminal runs away and you see him. He pulls out the batarang and he like, and he throws it and gets it around the guy's leg and then pulls the guy. Yeah. When I saw that at the cinema, I was like, whoa. I was even watching it now. It looks believable. I mean, yeah. you'd have to be a pretty good shot. But he basically... Well, he's, he's Charlie. He's Batman. I mean, he's Batman. <laughs> it's, it's believable. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, you could believe that... I do think Nolan borrowed some of that. You know, I don't think any of the gadgets you see in this film are completely impossible. No, I was, I was thinking that as well. They're, they're quite grounded in this one, whereas obviously in, as the films go on, they get sillier and sillier until... And, and let's not... We, we promised Bat, we weren't going to talk about Batman, Batman and Robin. Robin. We're not going to talk about it. pulls out the Bat credit card. Oh. We're not going to talk about it, George. Oh, okay. You went through... You went through... <laughs> you paid okay. a lot of money for treatment it's, on this. It's, it's okay. It's George okay. Clooney 
was never in a Batman film. Say it again. He was never in a Batman film. Right, there you go. Okay. So, yeah. I used to see you on a hard note, sorry. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but you have that scene with Vicky Vale and him. He's like, how much do you weigh? And then uh, she's too heavy. So, I mean, there was a bit of realism in the gadgets. Yeah. You know, the fact that you did believe that he was, he was building them himself. And I do think that Nolan borrowed some of that. And there's some great visual design the fact that everything's hidden behind his belt yeah. it's sort of like they're all sliding into view it's like has he got loads of stuff on his back <laughs> it's it, it comes up when you're talking about uh, grand theft auto it's like where do you keep all those weapons yeah well that's it it's um so you have um so yeah he's taking out all the different guys uh, jack napier running around uh, creating all these distractions uh, for diversions diversions that's Ar- what, uh, arguably his own demise yeah <laughs> And he's getting that, he's that close getting away. Batman lands, they have that first face off. And nice outfit. Nice outfit. And then Batman has to let him go. But Jack, being Jack, is so ego driven, wants to take another shot at him. Mm-hmm. And yeah, one thing leads to another. And he is knocked into a vat of. Dropped. Batman can't hold on to him. Or does he drop him? No, it's. It's a Nolan. It's a Christopher Nolan. Is it going to fall? Is it not going to fall? Well, that's it. You're saying... Yeah, does Napier let go because he doesn't want to go to prison? Or does Batman let him go? Well, Batman doesn't let him go. No, I think you see that hesitation in his his face. What, in Batman's face? Yeah, you see see that. No, I'm going to let... It's a very debatable point. And it's a lot of this whole point of Batman killing is a point that Ryle's comic book fans even to this day even with the Ben Affleck films that you know Batman's whole motto is you know he doesn't kill his parents got killed by got killed and got killed by a gun so that's why he doesn't use guns and why he doesn't kill yeah it's it's all about it's about justice yeah there you go fanboys but with this yeah it's completely open to debate whether he he just can't hold on to him but I think there's that this guy's better dead. It's definitely... He's going to keep coming back. Why are we talking about this? We're talking about this because I think Burton's making a point here because this is the first time we're talking about it. So in this mm. first encounter, Batman is responsible, you could argue, yeah. for the, the Joker's death. Yeah. But this is not the first time. These two, there will be... You know, we will find out that there is actually somebody created somebody. It keeps going back. Yeah. This is, this is a, a theme that runs throughout the film... Of creation. Um, of, of creation and... Uh, cause and effect. Yeah, cause and effect, creation mm. and termination between the two, these two characters, which I think, you know, we talked about the Jack Napier character not appearing. It's a brilliant idea. You know, in terms of who came up with that, it's obviously Burton, you know, or the, well, sorry, uh, Ham, the scriptwriter. The idea to make Napier the killer of Bruce's parents. Well, no, it's a, it's a very good point because Sam Ham argues, he says in this documentary, he said... Uh, I just want to make two things clear. I never made Jack Napier the murderer of Bruce Wayne's parents. That was Tim's idea. But, and he goes, and I never let Vicky Vale into the Batcave. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I mean, that, it's it, it's why I, you know, when I when you get to the end of this film and you see that, you know, like it's so, it's so circular. It goes well, around it, and around. Is the word I'm looking for cath- cathartic? Well, I said to you, yeah. Greek tragedy, yeah. the fact that Napier, kill, Napier kills his parents, creates Batman. Batman lets Joker, uh, lets Napier die, creates, creates Joker. Joker. Then Joker shoots Bruce Wayne when yeah. he's wearing the metal thing. Bruce Wayne's not dead. Yeah. Then Batman actually kind of kills the Joker. 
Well, he doesn't. He stops him from getting away. Yeah, but... and then the building—it's yeah. actually yeah. bad masonry that yes. kills Joker at the yeah. end. Yeah, but, but we're, we're rushing. Where, where, where there's blame, <laughs> where there's blame, there's claim. Call the claim, guys. <laughs> <laughs> You've got the the whole dinner scene. We're, I'm going to jump on now. You've got the dinner scene with uh, Vicky Vale and Bruce Wayne. We haven't really talked about Bruce Wayne, but I think or it's, Alfred. It's 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 interesting. It goes back to why the reason why he was cast is the fact that in this Bruce Wayne isn't the millionaire playboy. Well, he's a millionaire and he has success for he's ladies, a brooding orphan. He's he's a he's a recluse. He's a yeah. bit. Uh, I guess I've got to feel he's a bit like a Howard Hawks. He's an eccentric type. No one really knows who he is. You, you'd think. Vicky Vale would know what he looked like, but it shows that he doesn't get out often. Obviously, he's missing all the, you know, it shows uh, that opening uh, dinner party that is, you know, he's missing at his spot. So he is a bit of a recluse. And he hasn't I, even eaten in this room before. Yeah, and, and, and that's that's a great scene where he's like, they're at the end of the table and he's like, yeah, I don't think I've ever been in this room before. And it's that, that quirk that, sort of deadpan stuff that you know Keaton does zany brilliantly and Beetlejuice is a great film and he's amazing like I, for, for years I didn't realise it was the same person yeah because he's so stoic in this and dry whereas Beetlejuice he's physically all over the place but yeah he's um, he's got some great sort of Bruce Wayne scenes the sort of the tender love story that seems very, happened, happened very all quickly all I can tell you is that after th- nearly 25 years I still don't care about Vicky Vale's backstory involving her grandmother that's, that's true I think that scene is ruined there's a lovely scene where they leave that room that you're talking about they go to the kitchen they they break the you know it's like Alfred's not staff he's family and they have and Alfred's telling stories and it's a lovely scene and it's ruined by that terrible backstory so yeah and she screams a lot too much but she's drop dead gorgeous oh. I, for, I forget you know going back that um, Kim is it unfortunately it's it's they, they, in the documentary I watched they call it Bassinger it is Bassinger because a lot of people say Basinger and I hate Basinger. I hate that pronunciation but she still looks amazing in the in the t- 25 years on in the I was documentary I going to say she looked amazing in uh, what uh, was Nice it? Guys it, yeah even yeah. recently uh, and in uh, when she was made to look like some trailer park scum in uh, 8 Mile mm. she's still it's hard to make so yeah so she's a great damsel in distress and you know talking about like the gen the general themes of this film they're not just she's not just a flimsy they're talking about love you know they're in love that night Mm. that night just didn't mean nothing to me too bruce and it's like it's still the 80s aids condoms (laughs) don't get together with someone unless you're in love there was a sort of at the end she's in the limo she's waiting for him she's been in in the back cave and they're in love it's not what we know of Batman. You no. know, it's... Um... But I love the... Again, we're getting ahead, but she's like, but can't we just, like, love each other? And he goes, maybe, but he's out there and I've got work to do. Who's out there, George? Who are you talking about? The Joker. So, yeah, you've got... Then Jack is released. Jack, not Jack Napier. Jack Nicholson is released. <laughs> and... He's such a good bad guy. I mean, yeah, people can argue he's hamming it up. He's devouring the scenery, but he's so good. There is endless uh, one-liners. There's, I haven't really gone through the script in detail, but it'll be interesting to see how much of it is just Nicholson going off on one and how much of it that is written. 
Because there's something really eerie about that scene because you've seen the Joker, you know, I think because you've seen him the first time with his white face when he comes back to kill Gruesome and he does that very funny scene and they've kind of established the theme. Mm. He's like doing that turning around, spinning around, killing Grissom and it's playing that orchestral music in the background. And then there's this weird scene where he's assembled the mob, they're all around a table and you you hear him, but you don't see him and they're just like... Yeah, what's with that weird face? And it's just really eerie. And then it's all going well. And then there's this scene, which watching this again, I've talked about in other episodes, my music or whatever you call it, muscle memory on this scene was going into overdrive because it's just like, you're getting a little bit hot under collar. The, the, all of the scene with Antoine, you know, you're a sick bastard. What's that? Grease them now. Grease them now. You are a vicious bastard, retaliate. <laughs> I'm glad you did. <laughs> that, how much of that was improvised, I don't know, but it's an amazing, an amazing villain. I would argue, I'm sorry, there's a lot of people out there that say that Heath Ledger's Joker's performance is the best villain ever. I don't think it is. Mm. I think this is. I think this is the best Joker. But you can't you can't have one without the other. The reason uh, Heath Ledger's performance is a reaction to Jack Nicholson's. You can't go all... Because he was so out there, so in your face, so jokery, very much like the comics is. Heath Ledger had to go in the opposite direction, much like the whole realism. He had to, there had to be a reason. There had to be a, a real believable character. Whereas, yeah, the Joker is a comic book character in this film. He's very, he's larger than life, but he's brilliant. And I mean, yeah, it's, it's just a, a wish we could have had him in a sequel. I would just wish they could have got to the level that they do in the uh, in the comics, where he's referring to Batman as bats. You know, yeah. it's like it gets so personal, and it's this thing that that obviously is hammered into your skull in the Dark Knight, which is one can't exist without the other. And, a, and a, was it a, an unstoppable an un- force against an immovable object? Yeah, and yeah, I think. Um, without, I, I mean, I love the Christopher Nolan films. I love Christopher Nolan as a director, but some of his films, I mean, Inception is one of my favorite films ever, but some of his films are hard to watch the second time. Mm. And those speeches from Ledger in the films about his, in, what made him the Joker about getting cut mm. up by his dad and all that, to watching them two or three times, they're a bit, they seem a bit long. I could watch Jack till the sun goes down. You know, I mean, honestly, like, just, it's so much of the Joker that you know from the comics. Well, that, that, yeah, that whole thing of him, like, looking at the paper, smearing the blood away, winged freak, (laughs) terrorizes, wait till they get a load of me. And then he just starts going, I mean, that's nuts. I don't think it's like the camera still, like, just let the camera roll. Just let Jack do his thing. But I think that's also why they kind of, told him Robin Williams has been considered because we want an off the hook crazy joker and this reminds me this is a complete I'm going off on a massive tangent here and I do apologize but it reminds me of Philip Seymour Hoffman in Along Came Polly when they were channeling Jack Black no they said they were going to get they wanted Jack Black and Philip Seymour Hoffman said I can give you Jack Black Mm. And he basically and he did. did that role. And he did. And 
He's it the best was, thing in it. And he is the best thing in it. Yeah. And uh, and I think it was the same thing. I think Jack Nicholson was like, oh, you want Robin Williams? I'll give you Robin you Williams. You want crazy. Yeah, you want crazy? I'll give you crazy. Yeah, and he goes to town on it. And um, yes, he's remembered. Yes, he's the st- in some ways, he's the star of this film. It's going to last a lot longer than people remember. And as I say, I watched it recently and I'm like, yeah, he's amazing. But he's so good. I think Keaton does a very good job next to him. It's, yeah, the film's biggest crime is the fact that they kill off the Joker. Um, I'd love to see him, as I say, just Especially in this day and age. If it was done nowadays, obviously there's the whole shared universe thing and we've got to sort of keep it running. But yeah, at that time, they weren't sure how big a hit it was going to be. So he was always, from the first draft, he was always going to be killed off. But bizarrely, um, a bit of, um, there's so many uh, what-if Batman films that have could have been made over the well, years. So many comics, yeah. Well, no, but so many scripts that were developed and never got made since this film. And one of them was uh, for Batman Five. So following the the, uh, the film that shall not be named, the film that should be not named, uh, Batman Robin. But it was that yeah that chance to go back to doing something darker, and it was going to have Scarecrow, Harley Quinn, and there was going to be a scene in Batman Five where Batman encounters the scarecrow's uh, fear toxin or fear gas and he starts hallucinating and it was going to be a chance for to bring back nicholson as a cameo and he's going to be haunted by the joker and it was going to be nicholson batman can somebody tell me what kind of a world we live in where a man dressed up as a bat gets all of my press well, we've, we've already talked about already, but the the Prince video in the middle of the film with the museum uh, takeover, which is a brilliant scene. Um, the henchmen. The henchmen are having a great time. What I can't get over is just the fact that like, look, our boss is nuts. If we don't go along with this, he's gonna kill us. Gonna kill us. And they're having an amazing time. They're like playing Prince and they're just like, tearing trashing up it. artwork, trashing the place. And it's the same at the end on the float. They're like, look, We've just got to go nuts. We've just got to go nuts. But it's got that same, again, it's, there's so many iconic moments in, in this film and that iconic shot of him smashing through the sky, Batman smashing through the skylight, his cape open. Where does he get those wonderful toys? Yeah. You've got a, a great but short-lived car chase with the amazing Batmobile. And yeah, the, the one-trick pony, but it does work. Yeah. <laughs> um, you've got Vicky Vale screaming every five minutes. Um, then you've got the bit that I've, I've just had to make a note. The the sword guy that just pops up, the guy that flips over the fence. He's got samurai swords. He's going mental. Where did the Joker get that guy from? And I don't think he even knows. <laughs> and I've just it just smells of like studio executives going, we need more action in this, Tim. What have you got? We need to put an action scene. And it's something with some martial arts, some kung fu. You know what's popular? Martial arts. And it's it's also, it smacks of, oh yeah, just, just do the Indiana Jones thing. You've got the sword guy doing all the tricks and then Batman just takes him out. But I, I thought, I remember it like that, but it is, it is a, he does parry him once and then he comes he does, back. There is a it. bit of sparks flying, yeah. literally. Yeah. But yeah, I think somebody's actually counted the amount of times that uh, Vicky Vale screams and I think it's like in mid-twenties. It gets the to the thing. point where it sticks out. Another great scene when you've got Keaton and Nicholson in the same, the first time you've got them in the same room, but with Keaton as Bruce Wayne. And they're shadowing each other. Yeah, I, I love that. I love the fact that 
Keaton walks in and goes, oh yeah, nice apartment, lots of space. And he's trying to tell her he's Batman. And then the Joker shows up and the person says, nice apartment, lots of space. That whole scene, the way he's like, and he's got the music playing in the background. Yeah. Do, 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 do. And he's like, you know, we're like this. And he's like laying down the romance so thick. Yeah. But everything is, it's, I don't know. It's such a tense scene because obviously he's like, starts off with, is he going to reveal, is Batman going to reveal his identity? That's what you're expecting to happen. You're yeah. not expecting Joker to turn it, And up. then, like, what's what's Batman going to do? He's, well, what's Bruce Wayne going to do? He's, he hasn't got his outfit. No, but in today's world, Tony Stark or Batman opens up the briefcase and changes into Batman in the toilet and says, aha, I'm yeah. here. Whereas in this one, he goes and he <laughs> just, takes... This man, just going for a shit. <laughs> <laughs> he comes with, back... With your suitcase? He comes back with his... So uh, you with your briefcase. In this film, he just goes into her room and he takes her makeup tray and and he, he does a fistful of dollars. Yeah, sorry, he does a what? Well, it's what he does in fistful of dollars. He takes the the yeah. metal plate. You've got so many bits in that one scene. You've got Keaton going nuts, which is brilliant. Which is brilliant. It's completely out of Bruce Wayne. It's completely out of character for Bruce Wayne in any sort of Bruce Wayne never lets his guard down in public, but. Yeah. It, it's a great thing because it's such a tense scene. I'm trying to work out what was the motivation. Because, like, he's obviously, he's like, right, this is his game plan. It's like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to Napier. I'm going to go to Joker. Tell him that I know who he is. I'm going to pose myself as a yeah. massive threat. I'm then going to get threatening. And he's going to shoot me. Hopefully really? not on the head. <laughs> why didn't you just shoot him in the face? <laughs> yeah. yeah, why didn't you shoot but, him in the face, And then I'm going to disappear. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, let's not well too much on this theatrically it works really well uh you get some but great- you've, you've, you've got keaton going nuts you've got one of the best lines out of the film never rub another man's rhubarb <laughs> to just quickly jump back to my point about why i think jack nicholson is a better joker than heath ledger is that even reading the comics joker's hilarious and all of the, you know, in the more recent films, I'm sorry, but Joker is, it's funny, it's black comedy. Whereas yeah. I can't stop that. I think everyone has to argue it's it's a ride. Everything he says, his lines, his delivery, it's a performance piece. Yeah. And you, yeah, you can just see that spark in his eyes that there's, but there's that unpredictability that he could, you know, that brilliant bit, you know, we're, we're jumping all over the place here, but in the parade and it's, it, again, it's something that we used to love, um, you know, Bob gun and he just shoots his, his best henchman well that's it that is he, completely insane yeah, the he, fact that he, he for the whole of the film he's he's, cha- he's chasing Batman with Bob and then at the last minute kills Bob mm. you know he, it's I think the message that, that they, they handle very well is that he's hilarious but he's completely yeah. he's completely insane he's well, psychopathic well we've um, we've gone past the um, love that Joker you did talk about it earlier but that whole TV ad that sort of for me, a key plot point in so many of the Joker stories in the comics. Like, that he knows his chemistry. That, yeah, and he's the way he poisons people. So I think one of the first uh, Joker stories, he poisons somebody um, by poisoning their speech notes. So it's someone's at a dinner party giving, you know, a key address and just starts manically laughing and turns into, you know, the Joker grin and keels over dying. And that's... A re, you know, a reoccurring plot theme of him poisoning people with the, the the Joker gas or whatever it is, or the Joker toxin. But yeah, there's that whole scene with the 
the uh, 80s advert and for some reason I just got shades of um, of Robocop that 80s commercialism of buy stuff parodying adverts uh, in their own films but, but doing it very well but it's also shades of like typically Tim Burton that sort of 50 style sort of yeah. you know backdrops infomercial uh, type thing yeah um, set design well even you talk about that that music that the Joker's playing in Vicky Vale's you know that sort of seaside sort of um, organ sort of type music but yeah I love that whole oh no somebody's been using Brand X <laughs> But when they use mine, I get that grin again and again. I mean, I don't know. I, I think we talk about how much of this was improvised. Whether it was improvised or not is not important. The, the delivery is perfect. Well, that's it. Like, there's so much I still quote to this day that you and I will quote to each other. I will quote to um, other people that know this film really well. Like when he's going through Vicky Vale's portfolio in the museum. Crap. <laughs> Crap. Crap! Ooh, I like this. I've done I've I've, I've done that with portfolios in real life. <laughs> May have annoyed a few people. It's, it's about that quote, guys. <laughs> what you mean? You haven't watched the nine eight nine Batman film recently? It's a classic. The final bit now. So you've got the parade. Another Prince music video, but again, it's it's a good song. Yeah. What really annoys me still is that one Batman can't hit the Joker with all those rockets, his laser Somebody targeting. Somebody needs to realign his uh, computer-assisted <laughs> targeting. Um, he can't take out the Joker, and the Joker takes him out with one bullet. It's got I, a really long barrel. Though. I, I, that's I, as accurate as a sniper rifle. <laughs> Again, I think that's the Tim Burton influence. It's the with all of the gadgets. It, with all, the, it's the ridiculousness of it. It's the outrageousness of the fact that, yeah, the Joker's got... It's the sight gag. The Joker's got this massive pistol Which down Which is still trousers. hilarious to this day. It is still hilarious. Um, I, bizarrely, I was looking through the original script of the one of the first drafts because I'd read in, uh, in the documentary, they talk about how they changed the ending. But in the, um, in the parade bit, which makes a lot more sense on paper one of the parade floats is actually a tank in disguise. So, so when the Batwing turns up, the Joker and all his goons jump in this tank and the sort of thing, the, the turret pops out and he's a trying to just like strafe them in the plane and obviously they take out the plane with... Finds me ready. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Why he finds him ready, he's got a tank. Yeah. Um, but obviously, probably for budget reasons, they scrap the whole tank bit and they make it more of a, yeah, a comic set piece with the Joker and his massive barrel. Um, yeah, the ending was changed apparently because originally the face-off in the cathedral was just going to be between Batman and the, the Commissioner Joker. Commissioner Gordon and a bell. <laughs> <laughs> Commissioner Gordon trying to push a bell for 20 minutes. <laughs> okay, let's go. Um, no, originally, yeah, it was, it, was, it was Batman taking on the Joker himself, but... We apparently, needed more action. We no, needed. no. Apparently, when they were in um, Jack Nicholson and one of the producers, they, obviously they were the production was in London. They went out one night and they went to see a show in the West End. They went and saw Phantom of the Opera, and they thought it'd be a lot more operatic if Vicky Vale was damsel in distress damsel. was inserted. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, they changed it to and to have her as a distraction of how Batman gets to the Joker, even though he's been badly wounded. I think that works. I think that works. Yeah. I think because if you remove her from it, it would be a little. Yeah, there's there's no real stakes, I suppose. That you know, still done to this day. If you look in recent films like Iron Man three or True. whatever, you've got to have the. Yeah, it's happened many times that 
a strong female character is inserted, but then yeah. 80s, 90s films, she's yeah. turned into a damsel in distress. But I think it works to good effect. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, um, I'd say, we, we, we say it's a, it's biggest crime, you, you're killing off the Joker, but it's, yeah, it's a great set piece. You've got the falling bell, and yeah, I've just got to launch into it. Commissioner Gordon is fucking useless in this film. Why wasn't I told about this? Uh, uh, you go over there, and you go over there. Be careful with cops. <laughs> We're hunting the mob. <laughs> I mean, that is one f yeah thing that this film gets really wrong. And in in all of the the Tim Burton ones, the Joel Schumacher ones, Commissioner Gordon is completely useless. There's in no the comics, he's grizzled, muscly, and motivated. He's determined, he's, yeah, and that's what the Christopher Nolan films did brilliantly. You've got Gary Oldman, you've got him against the corrupt cops, him going out on a limb, and yeah, him being an integral character to the action. While still having, a, while still uneasy. being slightly uneasy about the idea of a vigilante. Yeah. Whereas this, he's just a doddery old man, and it's, it's more akin with the commissioner from the 60s, Batman. Oh, yeah. yes, hello, old chum. <laughs> I think that's it in terms of the the film from start to finish. So, shall we go on to recurring feature? Coulda, woulda, shoulda. So I think you talked already briefly about who is considered for the role uh, yeah, so there for were, many other roles, but we're going to talk about one in particular. Yeah, yeah. so there was many people in the, uh, in the running for The Joker, but Jack Nicholson was always the studio's top choice. However, uh, for Vicky Vale, uh, Sean Young was cast as Vicky Vale and went as far as filming uh, key scenes. And they were doing some early on in production. There was a horse riding scene with Vicky Vale and Bruce Wayne, and she fell off a horse and broke a collarbone. And they literally had a week to find another actress to play Vicky Vale, and Kim Bassinger was available. So it's got nothing to do with the fact that Sean Young's completely batshit crazy. Uh, well, they may, <laughs> the production team may have startled the horse intentionally. Um, but no, it's it's actually it's it's a little bit tragic because she's actually she's on this uh, retrospective documentary on the DVD, and she says, "Oh yeah, it would have you know." Uh, I, it still pains me to this day that I would have loved to have been part of such a successful film. It's sort of like, you know, it, it would, have, would have the things it would have done for my career. And it was like, okay. Um, I'm thinking of getting a cat. <laughs> <laughs> they call her the cat lady. Yeah. So yeah, Sean Young was supposed to be uh, Vicky Vicky Vale, and uh, to make it matters worse, they even cut out that whole horse riding scene anyway. But um, Moving on, um, so we sort of talk about it. This film is such a, a cultural phenomenon. I mean, in terms of we talked about the marketing engine behind it. It was the, massive. The merchandising, the bat symbol. That's the thing, the, 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 the poster of just being that black and gold symbol was everywhere. That was so simple, so, so perfect. Everyone knew what it was. It was on everything. Um, you had a hoodie. Uh, it, was, it wasn't a hoodie back then. It was just a sweatshirt. I was think. it just oh, a jumper? <laughs> a jumper back then. But, uh, it also paved the way for the brilliant uh, Batman animated series, which took a lot of those design Kept aspects. Similar sort of music, similar sort of timescale. Well, it took it back to like a futuristic 30s. Yeah, it was sort of like the 1940s of tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, 1940s with loads of really cool gadgets from yeah. the future. Yeah, it was... Um, I mean, I, I have a lot of 
love uh, for the animated series. Um, and most people would argue that it has the animated series gave us the best uh, take on Batman, Kevin Conroy. God, I love that guy. And the best take on the Joker. And I think wasn't that, this this small time actor couldn't get any more work, decided to do some voice work. What's his name? Mark Hamill. Yeah, well, I've never heard of him. AKA Luke Skywalker. So yeah, everyone says, oh yeah, Luke Skywalker never did anything, but he's he's did a lot of uh, voiceover stuff. And yeah. Uh, so Kevin Conroy's uh, Batman uh, Mark Hamill is a Joker in the animated series and they've gone on they're still doing it now and that probably segues nicely into the Arkham games which I'm going to talk about because uh, I was late to the party with the the PlayStation 3 because I'd been away traveling carry traveling with a PS3 is not very advisable or possible. So I came late to the party. This game was already out and I loved the first game, loved the second game, but this suddenly introduced so many characters. It, it was produced by DC and Warner Brothers and they decided to bring a lot more to the comic uh, of the comic book to the game. So well, it was it was written by uh, Paul Dini, who was a main writer on the animated series. Yeah, the story was amazing, and the character, and they kept uh, Mark Hamill doing the voice of Joker in yeah. the in the game. And there's something about the character. The character in these games is a it's a mix of the Heath Ledger and the the Jack Nichols, but it's the comic brought alive, mm. and. Not to fast forward, but I mean, obviously, they've made a trilogy of these games. They've been very successful. They're a great mixture of stealth and action. And in the most recent game on the PS4, you get to drive the Batmobile, but it's not really used as well as it could be uh, because we're all used to amazing driving physics in games like GTA. Um, when it's done in another game like this, it's it's a bit disappointing. But without any spoilers, the Joker has been prominent in all of these games at every single time he steals the show. Just like Jack steals the show and just like uh, Heath Ledger steals the show that it's the Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. It's the Blofeld and James Bond. It, the it yin is and the yang. The yin and the yang. You know, it's like you can't make a snake a, to my mongoose. Yeah, you can't make a good Batman story. And I say story because mm. I think that applies to books, to comics, to films, to computer games without involving the Joker somehow. And the best use of the Joker in the Arkham series is is actually after the Joker's been killed, which is involving uh, Scarecrow. Uh, Fiat And when he turns up, it's all in Batman's head, but Brilliant. it's for your enjoyment. And it's one of the best things in it. Nobody else can see him. <laughs> but it's like, it's his alter ego, like to talk about, um, you know, um, Animal House, like the, the little devil yeah, and on angel on your shoulder. It, throughout the game, you've got Joker being your alter ego and it's um it's it's something that the we've talked about it that resonates the relation it's a very complicated relationship between mm. the two of them that joker is as michael kane says wants to watch the world burn and batman wants eternal justice and i can't think of another mythology that deals with justice and evil in such oh, a chaos, chaos and order chaos and order mm. in such a in such a well-organized way in such a way that we can grasp that he doesn't have special powers it doesn't get silly and he just like like pulls lightning from the clouds this is a millionaire with gadgets against a psychopath mm. who will do anything and will go to any length and you know it's a very good reflection on what is possible you know, in what could be possible if you're writing a story about good versus evil. 
We haven't really talked about the Amiga game. I mean, you're talking. You've, you've been telling us about how brilliant 3D the three D graphics. You have, you've been telling us about how brilliant all the Arkham games are with your PS four, your PS three, but you know. I remember we spent a lot of time playing on the classic Amiga version, which was a platform game. I remember you jumping around, you had a grappling hook, you were throwing golden coins at people, I think it looked like. George, we never got past the Axis chemical level. Oh, okay, maybe the that's... last. We always got to the end of it, and then at the end, you had to fire your grappling hook, and we could never do that last bit. So I think we spent about four months in Axis <laughs> Chemicals. And then I think we had to get one of my friends over who was a little bit older and he could do the grappling hook bit. And then after that, you could get the Batmobile. Oh, uh, okay. And then you could um, fire the thing and go around a lamp so, 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 so back in the, in the days of the 90s where you had, there was a tie-in Amiga game. There was, I think it was a company called Ocean. They made a lot of games. They did... Uh, Terminator 2, I had, was one of them. Oh, I'm getting Predator? I'm going to throw it out there. I'm not sure if it was Predator, but I have a feeling that they were they were also part of the Atari sensation of uh, California games. Okay. Which was a big thing. Um, but there was also, so we had that on the Amiga, and I remember I had of the two games that we had on our Mega CD. Mega were, CD 2, George. Mega we didn't C get the first one. Sorry. We got the Sega Mega CD 2. Because we had the Mega Drive 2. Yeah, they, they the only two games together. we had were Echo the Dolphin and, and Batman, Batman Returns. Returns. <laughs> and some manga driving game. I can't remember what that was called anyway. I don't remember. But yes, the Batman Returns on Mega CD wasn't that much better. Um, very much a platform going level by level um, fire batarang go to next level yeah take but out no, lots thing is, of goons but it's funny how we remember it is that we were trying to live as much of Batman as we could and we were we were young we were kids yeah well because yeah we didn't have you know you didn't have all that accessibility of YouTube and, and all that that was the way you could consume like it was a way like I uh, talked about the making of book the soundtrack that was how you relived films when you were younger I did younger. find one of your Bruce Wayne um, action figures action figures I wasn't going to say dolls <laughs> <laughs> no sir I didn't see you playing with your dolls again I didn't say dolls I found your Bruce Wayne action figure and I was like look I think Michael Keaton would be really happy with... you mean is that, is that the one he's so buff is that the one where he's wearing a roll neck he's you, wearing a purple roll neck and he's ridiculously well built um yeah i haven't i, I failed to mention some of uh, michael keaton's or bruce wayne's uh, fashion choices in this film at one point he's i mean there's he's wearing the roll neck or the turtleneck as as the americans call him but at one point he's wearing a chunky knit a shirt and a cravat as well. George, that just sounds to me like a Zara model. You know, when you go to Zara and the guy in the, in the, the model's wearing like seven layers. <laughs> He's wearing a t-shirt, then a shirt, then a waistcoat, then a gilet, and then a jacket. And you're like, dude, where are you? And why are they all open? Well, it's... it's <laughs> if you're wearing that many layers of clothing... Uh, sorry, if you've logged in for the Zara podcast. <laughs> um, maybe you get that in Paris, Johnny Foreigner, but you don't get that in the metro city. Well, you can open just a shirt. Anyway, we digress. These games have been just as encapsulating as, as the, you know, we're talking about the animated series. We're mm. talking about Kevin Conroy. We're talking about Mark Hamill. Um, it should go, it can't go without us mentioning the Dark Knight where you have, you're going to tell me the actor's name, but Robocop. 
Oh, P- Peter Weller. Peter Weller oh, taking yes. on the realm of the... This is so, when so, so. Batman is older, more frail, and fights Superman, which is one of the best animated films I've Yeah, so, so it's the comic... It's based on the comic book, uh, The Dark Knight Returns, which influenced Tim Burton's mm. Batman because it came out in the, I think, 1986. One of the greatest graphic novels of all time, and it's all about an aged Batman coming back into the frame and facing all his villains and yeah it ends with him facing off against superman again they took a lot of that from the for the recent batman versus superman dc have done some really good animated adaptations recently some you know direct to dvd or whatever you want to call it they've done a two-part adaptation of the dark knight returns with yes none other than robocop's peter weller and he's got a great voice. He's, he's got such a deep voice. It's better it's, alive or coming with me. <laughs> but it's, um, no, but it's, it's no, as you say, it's, it's if you're a big Batman fan, seek it out because it pisses on the, the recent it's Batman versus Superman. It's 10 times better than anything that yeah. was in Batman versus Superman. They get it completely right. It's believable and they can go to places with the animation. And it's, and it's a great study of, of the Batman character. And I think that's what leads me into talking about Batman's a, he's a key uh, figure of American mythology. And the, the great thing about Batman is that he, he's a character that can change with the times and demands of, of culture at the time. So Millionaire playboy takes on evil. No, but if you think about the 60s, you had camp, colourful. Oh. You have the dark broodingness, the gothic fairy tale of the Tim Burton films. You have the gritty realism of Christopher Nolan, and then it seems with the current reiteration with the Zack Snyder, it's Let's kind of copy Marvel. <laughs> it was, it was, yeah, it's kind of somewhere between the two. But the fact is, with Batman, you can do that, whereas you can't do that with other superheroes. You look at when they tried to make Superman dark, fail in, in Man of Steel. <laughs> they tried to make Fantastic Four dark fail, and gritty. Fail, yeah. fail. And whereas Batman is a malleable character. And it also, just sorry, just to chip in there, but it also actually shines a light on how restricted Spider-Man is. But because you've seen that in the recent film that they can't really, they try to take, they can take him out of New York briefly, but he's always got to be a teenager. He's always got to be in New York. There's always got to be him struggling with being young and being a hero. They're, they're actually really constrained. Yeah. But Batman isn't. That's he's, true. It, there's a lot of, there's a lot of room for, for movement in, in Batman. Without this film, it was so influential on the comic book genre as a whole. But you can't... And everyone will talk about how superior the the Nolan films are, but you, I say... They wouldn't be here. Well, like Batman and the Joker, they can't exist without each other. Well, even Nolan's come out and said that yeah, they he, inspired him. Yeah, he said, you know, it's Tim Burton's... It, they, they're, they're brilliant. It wasn't an origin story, and that's what inspired him to take on Batman Begins because that story hadn't, that origin story of Batman hadn't been told. Tim Burton, as he said, was very idiosyncratic, gothic kind of masterpiece. And I think that sums it up perfectly. The strength of this film against many other of its ilk, of its ilk, you know, Donna's Superman, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, you know, Iron Man, they've all got origin stories, whereas this one doesn't. And I think that's uh, that's an in- that's what's an interesting twist on it. It just gets straight into it. So, I think we've kind of answered the question of does it still hold up today? Is this a generational thing? George and I are both in our thirties. We were young when we watched this. We were impressionable. I st- I don't think this would look too dated if you were to go back to it. 
I think it still holds up, but I think, are we biased? I think we'd have to admit that we're slightly biased. Oh no, I'm massively biased. I'm massively biased. (laughs) There's a lot to enjoy in this film, whether you're a diehard comic book fan or just a casual fan. It's, it's, you know, we have, yeah, we're inundated with comic book films at, at the moment. But, but I they're think, all glossy and shiny and part of a shared universe. This is, this I, is a standalone gothic film. And I think a lot of the credit, all the credit has to go to Tim Burton. It's his version and you, I'm, you know, Tim Burton's done some fantastic films. He hasn't done that m- many great films recently. What have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately, Tim? But he's very stylized. He very much has his own thing of Danny Elfman, Johnny it's what Depp. I, what I said about the... Uh, Helena Bonham Carter. <laughs> no, it's what I said at the beginning about um, the artwork. Hmm. Uh, I love that. I mean, maybe that's because this was just like, well, maybe some time before CGI had made its mark. But yes, you can see its artwork but it looks great. Mm. It, it kind of makes it feel more thespian. Yeah. It looks like a theater backdrop. You know, you can mm. see what it is, but you don't care. Well, Whereas now you're like, oh, that's Gotham, but you know it's CGI. Well, and it loses some of its effect. Kevin Smith, the, uh, the film director, he did a review of each of the, the Batman films. Him and his friend went back and they basically sort of record alternative commentaries. And the one thing they take the piss out of in this film is the fact that there's Gotham City on because they've created all these sets on a studio. It seems like there's only 10 people living in Gotham City <laughs> in all the sort of like crowd scenes. There's about 20 people max, whereas with obviously the Nolan films, they filmed in real cities. So it feels more, Chicago. Yeah, Chicago. <laughs> but yeah, I suppose it, it's um, I'll quickly touch on Batman Returns, the fact that because of the success of Batman, Gotta make a sequel. But, uh, but Tim Burton, um, he put his foot down and said, if we're going to do a sequel, we're going to do it my way. So that's why it goes... E- really, really Tim Burton. <laughs> really Tim Burton, really dark, really away from the comic. Again, I have a lot of love for that film. Are um, we going to cover that? Um, it's got off one of our favourite actors of all time in it. <laughs> Bruce Wayne? <laughs> why are you dressed as Batman? My son, Chip. <laughs> Santa Claus. Afraid not. Uh, Christopher Walken. We might do a quick uh, thing on Batman Returns, maybe, I don't know, as part of a Christmas special or something. I think we just did it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, done, done. Um, The less said about penguins with rockets on their backs, the better. I'm not sure if we forgot anything. I just, I have a horrible feeling that we might have sounded a bit... Uh, harsh on the Nolan films, which we which we thoroughly enjoyed and loved, don't we? Yes, I mean, um, I like to think of it as we're prob- maybe we're too defensive of Tim Burton's Batman, but um, yeah, we we both have a lot of love for for Christopher Nolan films. Uh, Inception's one of my favourite films. Um, I love The Dark Knight. I think it is a masterpiece. Um, however, it's one thing it's not is fun. Uh, whereas this film is, you know, as we've, we've talked about it is a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I think and that that's why I think it was me who was coming off and talking about Heath Ledger, but it was just in comparison to Jack Nichols. And I think they're both amazing performances and you're probably going to have a preference in mine is the Nicholson one. I'm not taking anything away from Heath Ledger. So I think that's pretty much... Oh, no. What, what, what didn't we have time for, George? Well, we didn't talk about the Joker from the 1960s, Batman covering up his moustache with makeup, but um, <laughs> that's not that important. Uh, no, we didn't actually... We ran out of time and we didn't talk about uh, the most recent Batman uh, cinematic release, which was the Lego Batman film. Great film, loads of jokes, and am I right in thinking it references just about every single incarnation of Batman that's been on screen? Oh yeah, so um, it, yeah, it, pretty much all the all the Batmen that we've been talking about. So the Adam West Batman films, um, all of the eighties and nineties films. So um, and it goes right up until uh, last year's Batman versus Superman. There's a lot of in-jokes. It's a lot of fun. There's even... Um, yeah, So many jokes. And it pokes a lot of fun at films that aren't even Batman-related. So it's not just for Bat fans. You know, if you enjoyed the first Lego movie, it has a, that same sort of quirky humour. The only thing, and I think we're sort of in agreement on this, is that the uh, Will, Will Arnett, uh, who is an amazing comic talent who plays Lego Batman... His gruff, sort of Christian Bale, Batman-style voice can get a bit grating after an hour and a half. Um, but yeah, still... There's no Bruce Wayne version of him, is there? No, no, it's just constant... Uh, for, for an hour and a half. Um, which is, it is a lot of fun, but yeah, I'm not sure if it's... I don't know if it could sustand, like, a sequel. I think he's good in small doses like he is in the, in the Lego film. Yeah. Okay. I think that's pretty much it. And wasn't there something in the news this week? Actually? Yes. Yeah. So since uh, shortly after we recorded our episode, there's been some big Joker news in Hollywood. So there's the ever-growing DC cinematic universe that has uh, obviously Batman vs Superman, Wonder Woman. And whilst a Batman trilogy has been discussed with Ben Affleck, obviously the Jared Leto uh, Joker uh, that popped up in Suicide Squad was really poorly received. And uh, just last week, they've announced a Joker Origins film produced by none other than Martin Scorsese, which I think has surprised a lot of people because he's never done anything comic booky uh, before, apart from... Uh, Hugo, which is a bit of a, uh, which is a nice kids film. But interestingly, apart from that, it's saying that Jared Leto will not be appearing as a Joker. They are looking for a new Joker. So it is not going to be connected with the bigger DC universe, which has got everyone confused, but also a little bit excited because that could mean that DC are starting to, well, not hedge their bets, but yeah, go off the beaten track a bit and do standalone stories as well as this ever-growing universe yeah why not i mean they own the rights if they they got scorsese interested he wants to make a joker film they're like well why should we maybe they have got something in production with jared leto why stop going down there why not have both it's all raising awareness of the of their comic brand so yeah why not well that's it if you think there's countless joker stories joker origin stories so there's loads of there's no real definitive take and that's what Dark Knight did so well, it made the Joker's origin quite uh, ambiguous. My only worry about this film, uh, and as, as we talked about in the episode, is that Joker only really works if you've got Batman in the picture. So if you're doing a Joker origins picture, where does that leave Batman? Okay, well, we really are, I think, pushing the limits of how long we could go. Um, sorry we've chatted for so long. It is a film that's close to our hearts, and obviously we've 
Um, we've tried to cover everything to do with Batman uh, that's occurred over the years to try and explain, you know, why it's still relevant today, why it's going to continue being relevant for the future. And George, you've written a review for our readers, the guys who follow our blog. Isn't that right? Yes, I have tried to write a very balanced review, despite being a huge Bat fan. That has, uh, yeah, some some interesting trivia tidbits. But uh, yeah, we there's the reviews there. There's reviews of all the other podcast films uh, coverage that we've done. And there'll also be some, uh, you know, silly little YouTube videos and things like that we'll put on there. So yeah, check out uh, retroramble.blog. Excellent. Uh, so thanks for listening. Next month, uh, next month, we're going to be back with the action sci-fi sequel to James Cameron's Terminator, Terminator 2, which has just come out on 3D in the cinema. Uh, so looking forward to that, George? Very much so. It's, uh, it's one of my favourite films of all time. Um, and I think it's our first James Cameron film and first sequel for, for Retro Ramble. So I think, uh, again, it has the potential to be another long episode because I'm sure we've, we've both got a lot to say about it. But I don't think it'll be the first time that anyone has to hear the occasional Arnie impression. So um, <laughs> until then, uh, I've been Charlie McGee. I'm Batman. I'm not again, George. Come on. Um, didn't say you could put the mask on. You said you, wouldn't, you weren't going to wear it. Swear to me. Okay, he's gone full Christian Bale. George, just take off the mask. No one can see it. It would be extremely painful for you. It's not even Batman, that's that's Bane. Okay, um, George, we really need to talk about this. No, I'm sorry. I'll, I'm, I'll, I'll get better.